Are you passionate about making a difference through design? Join us at the Human Centered Design Network's Circle, a new private community for change makers just like you. Connect with like minded professionals, gain exclusive rights to monthly learning opportunities, and lead the change in human centered design. For more information, see thisishcd.com. Now, let's get back into that episode. Welcome to another episode of Bringing Design Closer. My name is Jerry Scullion and I'm a service designer, trainer, educator and also the founder of This Is Hate City based in Dublin City, Ireland. Bringing Design Closer is a podcast dedicated on shining the light on the complexities of embedding the designer's mindset within organisations. In this episode, I chat with the wonderful Amy Buker, VP of Behaviour Change for MadPow in Boston in the United States. We chat about the emerging role of behaviour change design and how it intersects with other disciplines like service design and user experience and also cover off my personal unease with behaviour change design and unpack its ethical use and sometimes its misuse across industries. Amy gives fascinating examples of her work in healthcare and how she has used behaviour change design to help improve the lives of people using those services. Now we discuss how behaviour change design practitioners sits within a more traditional design process and discuss the origins of her new book, Engaged, Designing for Behaviour Change on Rosenfeld Media. Now the folks over at Rosenfeld Media are amazing supporters of This Is Hate City and I've given our listeners an exclusive 15% discount. So all you have to do is go over to Rosenfeld Media and use the code HATECITYENGAGE to get the discount. Of course, the code and the link is in the show notes to make it extra easy for you to check it out. Anyway, I've rambled on too much, but let's get straight into this episode. Amy Buker, a very warm welcome to Bringing Design Closer. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to have you here today because as we were just chatting before we started to record, Amy uh, was actually the very first winner of a book on uh, This Is Hate City when it started right back at the start. So it's really funny to um, to finally get to speak to not only a, a book winner, but also now an author. Yeah, and I um, I was saying to Jerry too, I really have enjoyed that book. It's something I use really a lot in my work. So it was a great um, sweepstakes to win. It was This Is Service Design Doing, wasn't it? Was that the book? It was. It was, yeah, because I do remember it cost me like about $60 to post it from <laughs> from Sydney to uh, to Boston. And I remember looking at book depository afterwards and it was like $35. And I was like, oh, that wasn't good. <laughs> well, and I, I remember I didn't realize that you were overseas. And I remember when I received the package having that twinge of guilt. <laughs> <laughs> the, the carbon footprint of shipping a book that came from Europe to Australia to then Boston I was like oh that wasn't good I won't be doing that one again but Amy <laughs> let, let's let's chat like you know so, so the book um you know engage psychology for digital product design first question how and why this book so um I became interested in writing that first of all I've always wanted to write a book I love writing I love um taking 
difficult scientific concepts and translating them into something that's understandable for people who don't have a lot of background. That's been a common thread through my career. But this specific book was because um, I kind of cobbled together my own career path, which is pretty typical of the people you see doing behavior change design, because it wasn't until a few years ago that it really became a little bit more of a cohesive professional community. And I would get people who would reach out to me after I spoke at an event or um, sometimes in response to something I posted on a blog or you know even tweets, things like that, and they would be interested in how do I become a behavior change designer? How do I evolve my career into this new area? And I would do a lot of one-on-one -on -one conversations and coffees, but that's um, really difficult to sustain. I tried to write a few blog posts that spoke to what behavior change design is and how one might do it. And again, like that wasn't quite enough to really answer the questions people had. And I just kept mm. wishing that there were a book I could hand people or give people the URL to buy and say, listen, this this will tell you about the field and how to do it. And so, um, you know, I, I always thought really highly of Rosenfeld Media. I've enjoyed reading their books. And when I saw that they had um, a form on their website where you could submit a proposal, I, you know, my trigger finger just hit submit. <laughs> and it, it did take a few years of going back and forth with them and refining the proposal and really honing in on exactly what the message was. But it all came out of this desire to help other people understand what behavior change design is and how they might make it a career for themselves if they wanted to. So behavior change design. And now I've worked with uh, lots of psychologists and I noticed in your book, you know, obviously you're um, a psychologist, uh, you're qualified. Um, how does this behavior change design as a discipline differ from, say, psychology, but also like what you bring to the design process? How does that differ that's differ from, say, the existing user experience world? So first on the psychology side, one thing that I like about behavior change design is that you don't have to be a psychologist to be a behavior change designer. I've had colleagues who come from other areas of social science. So for example, public health is one area where I've had quite a few colleagues who are thinking a little differently from me about behavior mm. and how behavior is influenced, but they still are bringing a really robust training and skill set to the field. And I've also had colleagues who have no formal training in social science, but have over the years through their reading and attending events and mm. um, kind of that self-education really developed a sophisticated understanding of social science theories and frameworks. So that's that's thing one is that you really don't have to be a psychologist to be a behavior change designer. Okay. And then thing two, and how is it different from user experience today? I think one of the primary differences is right in the name, which is that we're always focused on a behavior as the centerpiece of our design process. Hmm. So we will identify very early on in any design project the specific behaviors that we are trying to get people to change. And we try to be very crisp about defining those, making sure they really are behaviors. So something, um, you, and when you read my bio, you mentioned I, I care a lot about happiness and facilitating people's ability to do whatever it is that makes them happy. But happiness in and of itself is not a behavior. And so I never design directly for happiness. I might design for a specific yeah. behavior that le leads people to feel happier, but um, it's really about having that discipline of understanding what is the behavior we're designing for and then making sure that all of our research, all of our design, all of our measurement anchors back to that that target behavior. Yeah. So one of the things that when I, when I was reading it, I, I said to myself, well, 
behavior change design it, it for some reason it kind of makes me feel somewhat uneasy as a as a discipline and i was explaining to you beforehand that years ago the whole nudging theory this this thing that was very popular amongst marketeers and um it started to encroach in the world of design and you know that this thing could you know, change behaviors and it tended to become from the business's perspective of this is the behavior we want to see this is the outcome we want to get you know so in your world as a behavioral change design expert you know who decides the right behavior and like how how do you get to that point yeah i think that that's a great question and it's an unease that i share i i think you noticed in looking at the book that i tried at every opportunity to speak to ethics I interviewed mm. people in each chapter and I actually chose a few people because I really admire the ethical approach that, they bring. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I really wanted to make sure that comes through because the unease you're talking about, there's that's grounded in reality. There have been a lot of high profile cases of companies that abuse people's trust, that do things that um, maybe if they're not even outright unethical, still walk that line mm-hmm. where ultimately they end up harming people rather than helping people. So I do think it's it's really important to pay attention to that. And uh, there is no one right now enforcing a set of ethical standards in the design field or in the new behavior change design field. But one of the dynamics that is happening that I'm really happy to see is you have um, a strong ethical grounding in the academic tradition. So mm-hmm. any human subjects research you do has to go through an institutional review board uh, review, which really is looking for those sorts of ethical issues. That whole tradition comes straight out of the Nuremberg trials and yeah. uh, the Belmont paper. So there's this long historical um, consideration of the harms that could be done if these professional skill sets were misapplied. Yeah. And what, what I'm seeing now that I'm really pleased about is more and more cross-pollination of the academic behavior change tradition and this new behavior change design field, which tends to live outside of university contexts more in a commercial space. And as you see more of those professionals collaborating and talking to each other, I think you're going to start to see more of that um, strong ethical consideration from the academic tradition coming into the corporate tradition. Okay. I, that That's hopeful on my part. It's not quite there yet, but I think that there's, um, you know, there's just a lot of interest in those co- collaborations and everything they bring. And one of the things they will bring is mm. that, that training, that consideration. Yeah. I mean, with the whole behavioral change piece, just the, the question was, you know, you know, who decides if you're if you're in a typical client engagement, um, and the client says we want to change this behavior, you know, who or how is that managed to ensure that what gets uh, the behavior that gets you know worked on to to change that that adheres to the you know, human centered design principles? Is that something that the behavioral change behavioral change design consultant will will look after, or is, or is there a piece that you've had experience in? It is. It's a piece that I wrestle with often. One of Mm. the reasons that I like working at MadPow where I am today is that as an agency years ago, they decided that we are a, uh, you know, we, we have principles that we live into. And one of our taglines is good for people, good for business. So Mm. there have been times where we have actually known ahead of time that a potential client is seeking to change behaviors that are really just good for business and not not necessarily good for people. So, for for example, they just want to sell more of their product, whether or not it's the best product for people. And what I've seen happen is we will not pursue those projects. 
So that right away clears off some level of those icky discussions because we just won't get involved with those projects that aren't doing the good for people bit that's so important to who we are as a company and to who mm-hmm. I am as a person. So that that alignment is really crucial to me. But then even beyond that, you know, even people, even clients who say the right thing, who have, you know, their patients or their customers benefits at top of mind, of course, they do still have their business goals. And I think almost always there's a little bit of negotiation during the project where you outline what their long term goals are. And those are typically going to be things that are related to money somehow. They want a return on their investment. That is fine. And then Mm. you work backwards from there and it's like, well, what behaviors do people need to change in order for that return on investment to come true for you? It really is a a discussion where, okay, the the behavior can't be just buying more of your product. It has to be something that um, is beneficial to them. And that that ties back to the psychology piece. So um, I I weave self-determination theory throughout the book. That's really the behavior change framework. I rely on most. And it's this idea that in order for something to be motivating over the long term for you to keep engaging with something, it has to relate to your personal values, to your identity or to something you really care about. And the way that you design experiences that do that in part is by supporting people's autonomy, giving them this free choice. Yeah, the control. Yes, yes. So when I'm talking to a potential client or to an actual client and having this conversation, part of the point I'm trying to make is if you're imposing your goals on somebody, you are not giving them that autonomy. You're not giving them that sense of choice. And ultimately, if you want to have a long-term relationship with this person, if you want them to be your customer forever for the long term, you really have to give them that feeling of autonomy for them to be interested in that. So you need to play a longer game here. You can't just go for the quick win because you won't get the long-term win that way. So that goes into the whole kind of the interconnectedness of the relationship with trust, Amy. And it's I know it's something that you, you really care about. We were emailing last night and you've got a great chapter uh, in the book all about trust and how to build trust both with the the user and the, the, the person using the product or service. So talk to me about um, you know the, the tactics that you've seen and used that help build that trust with the people using the product or service? Yeah, so a a first step is really just establishing your credibility as the person or company who's built a product. So one thing I didn't mention before in terms of defining the behavior to be changed early in the process is another thing that I think sets behavior change design apart from design more broadly is that we tend Mm. to work with behaviors that are a little meatier, a little bit more complicated. So a project that is about getting more clicks on a web page, that, that feels to mm. me like an arena where a digital marketer can do a totally wonderful job without the help of psychology. Yeah. But if it's something like managing high blood pressure by being adherent to medication for the rest of your life, changing the way you eat for the rest of your life, changing the way you exercise for the rest of your life, those are the sorts of complicated behaviors where behavior change design gets involved. And typically when we work with those sorts of behaviors, there's some kind of clinical protocol or background associated with it. There's usually an evidence base that we're drawing on in order to say, these are the behaviors that are the right behaviors for your outcomes. And making that very clear to users is an important way to start to establish trust. So anytime there is a science background to the things that we're recommending, talking about that, talking about our own credentials, our own experience, There are products that have done scientific studies that have shown that they work for certain health problems. And and I'm I'm using health a lot because that's where a lot of my work is. But this 
this holds true across other fields as well. Uh, but, you know, if a product has been shown to help people lose weight and keep that weight off or, you know, quit smoking and stay quit for six months, sharing that data is a really important way to establish that credibility. Um, now, the art is in doing that in a way that most people can understand and are interested to understand, because we also know that your average user is not going to sit there and read an academic paper about your product. But <laughs> at least distilling that into um, a tagline or a show of credibility is really important. Yeah, it's the intent. Like I know there was there was quite a lot of pieces around you know sh showing um, the information and improving the transparency and the rationale behind the decisions and why we're doing certain things, and that echoes a lot of the stuff that I've heard from Lisa Reichelt, um, ex GDS and now in Australia as the head of insights and research for Atlassian. You know, show the thing. Um, it goes towards not just only building your stakeholders' trust, but also with your uh, the people using the products and services. So I really I really like that bit um, in the book. Um, going back to, uh, you, gave, you gave an example there of um, a project that you might be working on. Can you give us an example of, say, uh, a typical project that a behavioral change design consultant might be involved in and how that interconnects with, say, you know, traditional, and I'm using air quotes here, design research into, you know, a service design type uh, project? Yeah, I like to say that a lot of the activities a behavior change designer does are the same as other designers. It's just the mm. lenses and frameworks we bring to those those processes are a little bit different. Yeah. So almost all of my projects begin with a research phase and we um, and you conduct the research. I do. I do. Yeah. So yeah. I, um, for example, I'm actually I just wrapped up a research phase for a project with people who have a rare genetic condition and they have different health management behaviors they need to engage in to help control their symptoms. It's not curable because it's genetic, yeah. although there's hope with new technology, there may come a cure. And so I developed interview protocols and actually conducted one-on-one -on -one interviews with people who have this condition hmm. with the goal of understanding um, the company that we're working with actually wants to try to provide motivating feedback that will help people engage in these behaviors, knowing that it won't cure them, but just that it will keep their symptoms from progressing which is a really thorny sort of problem that I've dealt with a number of times in my career where you have a, a health condition or a situation where you're just mitigating decline as opposed to improving things. It's, it's a really interesting perspective to think through when you think about something even like a you know, progress meter or a, a visualization of, of progress because it's a very different, you're not showing progress toward a resolution, you're just showing, um, you know, ideally you're just showing a flat line and that, hits people differently. So we wrestle with that kind of question a lot. Okay. So in Mad Pow's world, behavior change design practitioners, do they um do they work alongside user experience or design researchers or are you the you know the new breed of design researchers, so to speak? No, we're actually fully integrated into our other team. So for any given project, we pull mm. together a project team based on the skill sets that are needed for that job. And okay. I, do, I do work alongside our other researchers. So for the project I just mentioned, I was working alongside one of our design transformation researchers who's really, um, you know, she thinks very deeply about context in terms of the organizations that people are embedded in. And, you know, like I said, we do a lot of the same activities, but we're bringing sort of different interpretive lenses to the way that we do them. So it's nice to have that complementary viewpoint alongside mine. I, I like that I'm always learning and being challenged a little bit. I think my my 
ability to be a behavior change designer is enhanced by working alongside people who have different training and backgrounds. So what, what I'm trying to understand from asking more about a traditional project for, for the likes of a behavioral change design consultant, it rolls off the tongue, that, that, new, that new title, um, is how does it interconnect with the, the other design processes like user experience and service design? And, and is the thing that you're, you're tasked to do just change the behavior or is it part of a, a broader project ecosystem? It's usually part of a broader project ecosystem. So Mm. uh, one example of, this is actually a series of projects that we've worked with. And I apologize because this is a very American example, but um, (laughs) there's a health plan here in the United States that we've done some work with. And health plans here, um, oftentimes they'll have large employer organizations who are their clients. So you'll get, I'll just use Google as an example. I have no idea if Google is a client of this health plan or not. Okay. Google will say, health plan, I'm going to offer your insurance to all of my employees. And then the health plan will make additional tools and services available to all of Google's employees because they're now customers. Okay. So we've worked with this health plan a few times now. One of the things that health plans will typically offer to these employees of their employer customers is a wellness app or wellness services, because there's a lot of data now that shows that I think it's 80% of healthcare costs are influenced by seven modifiable behaviors. So it's the way you eat, the way you move, your sleep, stress management, smoking, and there's two more. But um, so what health plans will do is they'll develop interventions or programs that target those seven behaviors. They give them Mm. to everybody. And their hope is that if enough people do them, they will ultimately spend less money in the healthcare system. They'll be healthier. They won't need as much care. So it's it's really a cost control measure. Yeah. But in terms of the individual user experience, what you hope is that they are finding activities that they enjoy that are improving their quality of life. They're helping them achieve goals that they want to do because most people also don't want to be sick. They don't want to incur those healthcare costs. So we did a number of projects now with this one health plan where they actually had us go out into their community and talk to people who might be their their customers, individual people, and really understand their needs and interests around health and wellness so that they could completely redesign those wellness programs that they're offering. And so with the first study that we did with them, one of the things we learned is that most people feel really frustrated with wellness apps that give them a lot of negative feedback. And that does tend to be the norm. You know, mm. you didn't you didn't get enough steps today or you ate too many calories, but you very rarely get congratulations. I guess with steps you sometimes do because that's so easily quantifiable, but people specifically kept saying, you know, I tried really hard and ate a good lunch today, or, you know, I made this sacrifice and nobody noticed, nobody patted me on the back for it. And so that was the sort of um, insight we were able to give to our client. And they actually went and developed a a totally new wellness experience based on that, which is really performing well and getting really positive feedback from its users And then from there, they've hired us to do some additional investigations to help extend that to additional audiences in some cases or into other areas of health. And so we're we're coming back to them with these sorts of broad insights, but then we're also working with them to distill them to really specific recommendations for how their development teams might implement them into it's it's a digital app. So um, I I hope that helps to explain a little bit. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Now that I know that it's part of a broader kind of project ecosystem as opposed to replacing, say, a traditional, and I'm doing the air quotes again, I'm doing a lot of air quotes here. I'm like Joey and friends doing the air quotes. Um, it's, uh, 
it, it, it complements the the research process of user experience and you know all the other qual and quant um, method we use all the time in, in our disciplines. So it's 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 important to to understand that because I, I know a lot of my peers when I when I mentioned that I was excited about you know speaking to Amy Buker today. Um, they were like asking saying, well, what's the story with this? Is how, how is that going to work with you know, is it going to try and replace user experience or how, how does it work with that? So it's important to address that, that the book is really around this role of, of behavioral change and how it sits to complement the, the design research phase. Do you, do you typically um, extend beyond the research phase into ideation and prototyping and, and, and so forth? I do. I do. And um, that, that relates to a point I wanted to make, which is I really think that behavior change design can exist separate from other design skill sets in a sense. It's like an overlay. So I think you could be an interaction designer who's also a behavior change designer or a content developer who's a behavior change designer. I happen to come in with a, a research and strategy skill set. But I've known other behavior change designers who, you know, they can create beautiful visuals that are part, you know, then implemented as part of the experience. So I really think of it as almost a pair of sunglasses that you can put over um, your existing viewpoint or existing skill set. And it's bringing in that, first of all, focus on the behavior. And secondly, the, the frameworks, the empirical evidence that comes from social science. But. To, to answer the question that you asked, yes, I do get involved into the ideation phase almost always. And then I don't have a skill set where I'm actually coding or, you know, creating visuals. I, I do sometimes get a little bit involved in content development, but I recognize that um, at some point it's always best to hand that off yeah. to a specialist. Yeah. Um, I can do just enough to be dangerous there. Absolutely. And then I, I typically get involved in the end again, because if we are deploying something, first of all, we really want to consider the process through which it gets deployed. You know, we're, we're not just creating a digital product. We're also creating an experience through which it's set off in the world. And perhaps people need to be trained in it. Um, that happens, especially sometimes if we design something that's for, say, physicians or more of a professional group, and it's part of an existing workflow. And we want to measure it. We want to make sure that there's an evaluation plan in place so that we can see if this thing is actually working. Which is my next and question. And go back and make updates if not. You, it's, yeah. it's like you're reading my mind on my notes at the same time. You're not reading my mind. And you're definitely not reading my notes. But I'm really keen to see how... Um, you know, you know, how you measure this. So if you're, if you're trying to change, obviously you could say, you know, clicks and, and so forth, but how, how do you measure that the behavior has been changed? Because behavior is such a complex thing. It is. Um, so in the book, in one of my early chapters, I talk about measurement. And one of the activities that we do very early in the project, we identify those target behaviors, as I mentioned, but we also identify what the success metrics for the project will be. And we work backwards from there. It's almost like a, a time-based map. So uh, we have leading indicators. These are the things that happen first that you can identify pretty quickly. And those tend to be your clicks. Are people actually using this intervention? And if it's not digital, it might be things like signups or attendance at an event. Whatever, um, you know, whatever your thing you're building is, there usually is some way that you can tell early on if people are interacting with it, if they're experiencing it. And we want to measure that because if they're not then it won't work so with that kind of um approach to to research um is there qualitative and observational research going on at the same time if you're just focusing on clicks it's it tends to be very quantitative focused so one thing we do a lot during our development process and we haven't settled on a good name for this we sometimes call it desirability research mm. or usefulness research 
But when we have a prototype of a product, um, kind of the early design stages where you can start to see what something might be, we'll often bring people back in to look at it and interact with it. And what we're trying to understand is not um, usability. That comes a little bit later when you have the design a little bit more solidified, but is this something that you're interested in that you might use? What role would it fill in your life? How could we talk about it to you that would get you to be interested in it? And that research goes toward that initial port point. Like how can we make sure that people are interacting with whatever it is we're building so that their behavior ultimately is affected by it? Yeah. So then are you looking for the likelihood that this is more desirable than the previous piece? So this, this has got, um, you know, this showed these signs of more interest from X amount of people. Is it that kind of approach? Yeah. Yeah, that's one of the things we're looking at. Another thing that I'm particularly paying attention to is whether it fits a need or a perceived need the person has. Because one of the things that we know is that if a product, even if it's really cool, if it doesn't do something for a person, if it doesn't deliver a benefit to them, and if it doesn't fit with their existing habits and routines, it's far less likely that they'll use it regularly. So we want to make sure that there's this nice integration with what they're already doing, or it provides enough value that they're willing to change what they're already doing. So like an anthropological kind of consideration of how they're currently doing these things, that's been considered to, 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 so when you've got a new potential prototype that it's, it's actually not just of interest, but it's also meeting the need. Right, absolutely. That's perfectly said. Yeah. <laughs> I think we're I think we're on the same page. So Amy, there's um I thought the book was out, but the book is out next week. March third, so I think it's two weeks. What are you doing when the book goes out? I, I you must be celebrating. Well, I'm actually going to be um, on site with a client delivering a workshop that day. Oh. So the the <laughs> the release date moved. We had. Um, you know, we had some other considerations going on in terms of the marketing and the design. And so it moved from when it was originally going to be. And I had already booked this client trip. So I've told my coworkers they're taking me out for a cocktail and they've agreed. And then when I come home, I think we'll we'll just get together with some friends. I saw um, Andy Welfel, who just had a Rosenfeld book come out That's last right. month. That's right. He was on the podcast last I, month. I was... Yeah, yeah. So I was looking at his his tweets from when his book came out, and he had a cake made with the cover of the book, and that has really caught my fancy. So I might do that too. <laughs> well, now that you've said that you're you're doing a workshop, you know you cannot ring in sick on those days because it would be just too obvious. <laughs> well, I'm going to be in another state. Is the thing. So we we travel a lot for our client uh, work. So we'll be out of town. New pl- new city for me, a place I've never been before. So I'm trying to, um, you know, have a spirit of adventure about it. And hopefully the workshop goes well and we have really great drinks. It's great. Amy, I'll put a link to the, the book in the show notes. Um, if there, people want to reach out to you and ask some questions, how might they go about doing that? So uh, my Twitter handle is amybphd. And I am on there all the time. So I check that. And then I also have a website, which I neglected really badly while I was writing the book, but I'm trying to get better about it again. So that's um, amybuecherphd.com. And I, you know, I, I will be blogging and things on there more frequently. Okay, very good. Amy, it was great chatting to you and I'll chat to you soon. Sounds great. Good talking to you. I hope you enjoyed this episode and if you'd like to be part of the conversation or community, hop on over to thisishatecd.com where you can join the Slack community and help shape future episodes and connect with other designers around the world 
or join the Hate City newsletter where you can win books and get updates. Subscribe to our content on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and listen to any of our other podcasts such as Getting Started in Design, Bringing Design Closer with myself, Jerry Scullion, or Power of Ten with Andy Pallane, or Decoding Culture with Dr. John Curran, Prod Pod with Adrian Tan, and Ethnopod with Jay Hasbrook. Thanks for listening and see you next time.